Podcast. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Are you the kind of person that says yes to everything? Are you afraid to say no when someone asks you to do something? Well, how do you change that? How do you flip the script and effectively only say yes to the things you really need to do, that you really want to do? Following the example of Captain Janeway and a very different cast than the one that we've come to know, I'll share my favorite way to respond to a request. Yes, if. Let's do it. It's the 10th episode of the third season of Voyager, Warlord. Neelix, the cook and morale officer of the ship, has created a new holodeck program, the Paxaw Resort. It was a hoity-toity resort on Talax. It's like a tropical getaway. Harry Kim and Tom Paris contribute by adding a bunch of 90s scantily clad women and some Caribbean music that leads to the most disturbing scene in all of Voyager, a barefoot Neelix getting down with a bunch of ladies. A little later on, Balana, the ship's engineer, visits and makes a few additions of her own. Well, I've made a few modifications of my own. We see this holodeck program off and on for a while on the show. All the senior officers are called to the bridge. There's a transport ship that's been attacked and is breaking apart. It's a sticky, tough operation, but they're able to beam the crew to sickbay just as the transport explodes. I've got them, Captain. All three passengers are in sickbay. I'm impressed. The doctor and Kess are treating the injured crew. They're in bad shape. Kess, if you remember, is the Okampa person they picked up back in Caretaker. The Okampa are an interesting and entirely impossible species. More on that in a, in a future episode. But they have a lifespan of only about nine years. So they age quickly, reaching physical maturity after well, a little after a year old. At this point in Voyager, Kess is about four years old. I'm only four! They also have impressive telepathic abilities and tend to be very compassionate. Kess has been working as a medical aide to the doctor and also manages the ship's aeroponics bay, which provides plants, fruits, vegetables to the crew. Most of the injured are going to recover, but one, Tyrion, Tyrion isn't. Doctor, his heart stopped. Tyrion's wife, Nori, is heartbroken. Kess comforts her as Tyrion passes away. The survivors say they were attacked by mercenaries who were likely wanting to kidnap them and ransom them to the autark of their planet. They set course to return them. Kess is spending a lot of time with the survivors, comforting them, giving them a tour of the ship. She and Neelix meet up in the holodeck. He wants to spend time with Kess and the survivors as well, and in pure Neelix fashion, pushes just too far. We can keep them busy together. I'll arrange so many fun activities, Nori won't have time to be sad. We all know this person, right? The one that that sees you doing something, wants to get involved, and then tries to take it all over. Oh, it's so annoying. And Kess, Kess has finally, finally had enough. She lays it down to Neelix, saying he's jealous. He interferes in her life, and she breaks up with him. It might be a good idea if 
for both of us to spend some time apart. They arrive at the planet, and a representative from the Autark comes on board to thank Voyager. When he comes on, Kess whips out a phaser, blasts the rep and the transporter operator, Ensign Martin. They beam a shuttle into space and then themselves onto it. Kess is shouting orders and leading the escape. They warp away, and Voyager is in pursuit even though they've lost track of them on the sensors. Ensign Martin and the Alari representative are dead. Things are not going well. Kess, Nori, and the crew arrive at a planet, and they meet with a lieutenant of Tyran. That's Tyran? That's right. Tyran transferred into the mind of Kess. She's still in there, but Tyran is in control. Full control. Even has control of her telepathic abilities. It turns out that about 200 years ago, Tyran was the autark of this planet, but was eventually deposed by the people because he was terrible and he murdered a lot. He found a way to keep his consciousness alive and host bodies and has been working for two centuries to reclaim his title. On Voyager, the doctor goes to work on the corpse of Tyran. Examine the body of the man who died. We need more information about how the transfer works if we want to get Kess back. And is trying to find a way to recover Kess in her consciousness. The current Autark's son, Demos, claims that she's lost forever. He wants to enlist Voyager for a battle against Tyran, but Janeway is not down with that. But my only intention is to rescue Kess and remove Tyran's consciousness. That should serve both our interests. The good old prime directive in action right there. Well, Kess and crew march into the Imperial Hall kill the Autark, and kidnap his other son. Kess, I, I mean Tyran, proclaims herself Autark. She immediately starts doling out titles and assignments to her supporters and entrenches herself in the hall. There are moments where Kess seems to shine through, though. Getting excited about plants, Tyran or Kess, the body, keeps getting these headaches. Over time, we learn that there's a struggle for control going on in Kess's mind. The citizens are splitting into factions. The law supports Demos as Autark, but Tyran is playing on power and charisma. There will be no way to avoid a civil war. The doctors figured out how the transfer was made. There's a neural node, some microfibers in the skin, some stuff like that. Well, knowing this, he's created a device that will remove Tyran's consciousness, but it has to be put in contact, physical contact with her in order to work. Tuvok sneaks down to the surface, infiltrates the hall, and attempts to put the device on her, but he's overtaken and he's imprisoned. In the meantime, things are not going well for Tyran. This body isn't accepting your neural pattern very easily. Advisors thinks he needs to find a new host as soon as possible, but he likes the telepathic powers a little too much to give this body up so soon. Tyran questions Tuvok, and in that, He's able to grab her in a Vulcan mind meld. This allows her to break through temporarily. Tuvok coaches her on how to fight for control. You see, he's not a machine. He's a man. But then Tyran gets control back. Because Tuvok has missed his rendezvous, Janeway works with Demos to plan an attack on the Imperial Hall. Back in the hall, as Tyran tries to rest, Kess mounts an assault. She's fighting back fighting hard. You're already deteriorating and it's only going to get worse. I'll find every little crack in your defenses. She is stronger than she's ever been before. Tyran's doctor pulls him out of the battle furious. She uses her mind to crush his and she kills the doctor. Not the doctor doctor, but Tyran's doctor. 
Demis's fleet and Voyager advance on the planet. A small team makes its way into the hall. They rescue Tuvok and make their way to Tyran. The fight is on. They phaser their way through the defenses. Neelix stuns Tyran, stuns Kess, slaps the device on her face, and she's back. Demis, it's over. She hands control to Demis, who is the rightful and uncontested autarch. As Voyager leaves the scene, Tuvok helps guide Kess through meditations to heal her mind. She's struggling to adapt, but he commits to helping her. When this one came up as the episode, all I really remembered about it was Kess breaking up with Neelix, but there's so much more to like in this one, and it's all embodied in Jennifer Lean. Her getting to take Kess to new places was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, though, well, we also get a sneak peek into some of the darker points in Voyagers and well, even Enterprise's futures. Come to Quark's Quark's fun. Come right now. Go Quark. Run. If you are a professional looking at the European startup scene, Germany is a place you cannot miss. Fortunately for you, there is StartupRad.io, the authority on German startups. This English-only podcast brings you fresh interviews each week. Most likely, you have never heard or read anything on these startups before in English, but you will in the future. Be ahead of the curve and subscribe to StartupRad.io podcast or check for the StartupRad.io internet radio station. Check your Alexa for the StartupRad.io skill as well. Hey, Brent. Have you ever seen Babylon 5 before? Babylon 5? I mean that show from the 90s? Yep. No. You want to watch it? For the first time? Let's do it. Babylon 5 for the first time. Not a Star Trek podcast. We are two veteran Star Trek podcasters watching Babylon 5 for the first time. We're searching for Star Trek-like messages in the series and deciding if we should have watched it sooner. You can find us on Good Pods, YouTube, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Babylon 5 for the first time. Not a Star Trek podcast. I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. Held to any level of scrutiny, this episode is pretty ridiculous. I mean, a murderous tyrant from 200 years ago shows up in the body of a young alien and everyone's like, yeah, sure, okay, you're the autarch now, I guess. And 200 years? Yeah, because of a microfiber thing? Hi, it's Vince with ShamWow. But hey. This isn't an episode about feasibility. It's about Kess evolving and changing as a person. And that evolution is pretty fun. I suppose I could threaten you or torture you, but I doubt that would make any difference. <laughs> Do you really think you can keep me away from your innermost thoughts? Your fears and insecurities? Your feelings? Jennifer Lean was really leaning into this and having a good time. In the interview, she said this role was a real stretch for her. I thought she was great. And honestly, the flimsy premise that made it all happen gave the perfect cover for any acting missteps. Like, hey, that's not bad acting. That's Kess fighting back against Tyrion. <laughs> it's brilliant. Like I've said, my favorite part about this episode is the end of Kess and Neelix's relationship. 
there's a really big part of the Star Trek community that has a problem with their relationship because Kess was two years old when they met up. Oh, seriously? So gross. Me? I have a problem with their relationship because it was a bad relationship. Kess was right. Neelix is creepily over-involved in everything. He stifles her. He's super jealous. Breaking them up gives Kess a chance to be her own person, and I am totally cool with that. All that said, it's not like Star Trek had a lot of great relationship stuff in it, right? Part of that comes from the overlord of all things Trek during this period, Rick Berman. I feel like this guy wanted one thing out of business and two things out of Trek. He wanted money out of business, and he wanted it through syndication and sex. And we see that in a lot of places. But we're off to the races starting here. It eventually leads to Jerry Ryan wearing outfits so tight she's nearly hospitalized. And those super awkward scenes in Enterprise where they rub glitter gel all over each other. Well, in this one, we see it in the very mid-90s swimsuits everyone is wearing on the holodeck. And the wildly weird scene where Tyrion marries Demis's brother when he's already married to Nori. And I want you to be close friends. I want us all to be very, very close. Huh? Yeah, nothing subtle about that at all. Despite all of this, though, it's a fun episode. Great for background watching. That said, honestly, if, uh, if you never saw this one in your entire life, mm, you'll still do just fine. Command codes verified. Saying no can be a showstopper, right? Or best case, it can make everyone have to work a little harder. If you're asked to do something you can't or don't want to do, saying no can reflect poorly on you, right? I mean, it does, doesn't it? Does it? Hmm. Well, what do you do? Well, I say you say yes. Yes, if. I'll talk about what this looks like and how it can lead to wildly innovative ideas. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Before we get to the yes-if approach, I want to point out a split-second thing that happens that really hit me in the wrong way. At the beginning of the episode, they run into the damaged transport and call for all the senior staff to come to the bridge. There's a half second, just a tick, that goes by where we see Tom Paris in his holodeck gear slide into the helm position and whomever was on shift before him slide out. Totally innocuous, right? Well, first, I got to say, like, yes, <laughs> I know this is a TV show. I know that Tom Paris is one of the main characters. I get that. But this demonstrates such a toxic view that promotes self-importance and kills team development. I used to be in the U.S. Navy. I served on a submarine, which I've got to believe is about as close to a starship as I could get at the time. The operational culture of a boat is built on qualifications, or quals. Before you can stand a watch or do a job unsupervised, you get qualified to do it, which means a superior checks your work and signs off on it. Any person that works a job unsupervised is totally trained and completely qualified to be there. So is it not like that on Voyager? Like, if there's an emergency... Does a senior officer always have to come on watch? Is uh, 
above my pay grade. If you're not on the DVD cover, all you can do is point the ship in a direction and keep that going? <laughs> That's ridiculous. With a culture like that, no one will have any confidence in their abilities and will never grow or develop in their job. And the senior officer that always has to swoop in is going to develop this gross sense of self-importance because only they can solve the big problem, right? Or, or the other side of that coin is those people might feel overworked, overwhelmed. They're not being treated fairly. And that's totally true. Like, it's either boring and routine all the time or super stress-filled and urgent all the time. Frankly, neither of those are very palatable. Does this sound like anything you've ever seen or experienced? The day-to-day -day work, right, is good enough for anybody. But when things get tough or high-profile... The same people tend to take over or get those assignments. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. I've seen this too many times. And every time I do, there's either super high turnover in the regular positions or morale is tanked or both. To stop this from happening, you need to do two things. First, like we did on the boat, make sure that every person doing a job on their own is qualified, trained, and prepared for the job. Second, be sure to spread the assignments and opportunities around equitably. Give everyone a chance to handle some of the routine stuff and everyone a chance to do the exciting stuff. I mean, the dude on shift could likely have handled the transport ship thing just fine and it probably would have been the highlight of his month. Take a good, hard look at the workloads in your area and see if this is happening and then do something about it. One of the reasons this happens is because high performers and, and often more senior people have a really hard time with one word, one single word, two letters, no. There are real consequences to saying no. And well, mostly a lot of perceived consequences to saying no. If you never say no, you're going to have an overloaded plate for sure. Too many projects, too many responsibilities, and too many opportunities to let people down. But if you do say no, people are going to think you're difficult. They'll think you're lazy. They'll be like, what does Jeff do anyway? I mean, seriously, that guy's always turning stuff down. Or will they? Honestly, one set of these things is true and the other, honestly, simply, simply is not. It can absolutely be hard to say no, but all because of situations that we make up in our heads. We don't want to be perceived as negative, but we also want to be seen as helpful. The reality is, though, if you say yes to everything, you will absolutely let people down because it is not possible to meet all the commitments you'll make. In fact, another way to think of it is that every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Yes, I'll do that research for you means no, I won't spend time with my family. Yes, I'll do that presentation means no, I'm not going to get my sales force updated. Right? See what I mean? So, so what do you do? Well, instead of saying no, you say yes if. Hey, Jeff, will you take this presentation on? Yes. If someone can handle this data entry for me or, Hey Jeff, will you take on development of this power app? Yes. If you get me trained on power apps, ensure I have the correct licensing and, you know, cover my daily workload. 
Now, it's not a no. You've just clearly identified what needs to happen to make it a yes. Whether or not those things are achievable are up to the person asking you. You can apply this to just about anything, and it's awesome. I mean, who wouldn't want to learn a new skill while someone else did their day-to-day work, right? And if it's so important to the powers that be that I'm the one that develops the app, they'll provide all that stuff. If it isn't, then they won't, and they'll find someone else to do the work. It's also a great way to encourage innovative or different thinking. In the episode, Demos says Kess is gone. Tyrion has taken over, and there's no way to save her. And Janeway responds, I'm not prepared to accept that yet. She's essentially saying, yes, Kess is gone if we can't find a way to save and recover her. And then she leans on the talents and the expertise of her team to solve the problem. And let's pretend, let's just pretend that Tyrion's body wasn't still available for the doctor to start his investigation with. Janeway tells him to find a way to pull Tyrion's consciousness from Kess, okay? Well, he could say, yes, if you can get me scans, data, tissue samples, etc. from his people, or ideally, from him. Then, if those things aren't available, he's not perceived as being difficult for saying no, but instead, Janeway would respond with, We don't have access to any of those things. And then he could either say he couldn't do it or say he'd do his best, given the lack of information that everyone has agreed isn't available. You see how this works? I use this approach a lot when I work with the public sector. In the government space, there are more than policies that direct the work. There are laws. And yes, laws dictate a lot in the private sector, but I've often thought about the difference being that in the private sector, laws tell you what you can't do, while in the public sector, laws tell you exactly what you must do. It's a tight distinction, but it, I think it makes sense. I'll talk, I'll talk background checks as a for instance, since that's an area I know really well. If I'm a private company that runs long-term care facilities, the law tells me I can't hire someone without them going through a background check. If I'm the regulating agency doing those background checks, that exact same law tells me who, how, when to do the background check, all the details. So when I'm working in the public sector and I ask if a thing can be done, I am (laughs) very often told no. But using the yes-if model... That changes a lot. I ask if something is possible that could offer a huge efficiency, help a lot of people, and save money. But there's a law that says they have to do things in a more wasteful way. So now, instead of no, it's yes if the law changes. And bam, now I've got a path. I have a to-do. Because guess what? Laws can change. Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. I mean, they change all the time. But if I know that's what needs to happen, everything changes. First, is it worth the work of changing the law? Like, does this save $8,000 a year? Because if that's it, it might not be worth the time and effort. But if it's bigger than that, or the positive impact to people is big enough, Then I start looking at how I can introduce a bill to change the law. And that's a far cry from no, right? Now, I loved this moment in the episode that Kess was faced with exactly this. She'd killed the autark and taken the younger brother hostage. Demas, the now rightful autark, was on Voyager. 
She was trying to get the little brother to pledge loyalty to her, but he wasn't interested at first. He pointed out that Demas was legally the guy. It's the law. Kess, as Tyrion says, Doesn't have to be. It can change. I mean, she's the autarch, so she'll have a shorter path to changing the law than, than I would. But the point is, the law can change. Rules can change. Sometimes it's not a constraint, but just a different task. One of the keys to this, though, is that you got to be realistic. You can't pull stuff like, uh, yeah, we can do that. If we have a new governor, the libertarians gain control of Congress and they vote during a solar eclipse. I don't know. That's just being ridiculous. And I don't know. <laughs> Depending on where you land on the spectrum, maybe kind of funny too. <laughs> but the ifs have to be real ifs. And yes, sometimes they're not going to be achievable. My earlier example on power apps, like maybe the organization can't afford the licensing. That's real, but it's also a real if, right? If I have the licensing, well, we can't afford the licensing. Okay, well, there you go. I think we get so stuck in this thinking that we have to do something or that something has to be a certain way. In the podcast episode on discovery, magic to make the sanest man go mad, I talked about the six words that mean the end of any organization and how Burnham ignored them. Those six words are, that's how we've always done it. We have, uh, we have always done it this way. Sometimes that gets codified into policy or a procedure or something. Just because a thing has always been done a certain way doesn't mean it needs to keep being done that way. Using yes if, you can identify those barriers and then decide if you want to change or not. And really, that myth that you have to do something is just that. A myth. There is very, very little that we actually have to do. There's a lot that we've taken on as responsibilities or even obligations, but, but the reality is we choose to do those things. When I feel like I have to do a thing, need to do a thing, I lean on the words of Principal Joe Clark as portrayed by Morgan Freeman. I don't have to do nothing but stay black and die. Like, that's it. Even the saying that the only certainties in life are death and taxes is a lie. It's a myth. Like, a lot of people don't pay taxes. So many people. So, so stop saying no and start saying yes if. I mean, selfishly, this is a great tool to use too. Sometimes it's not about the constraints or barriers. Sometimes you honestly just don't want to do a thing. You can use this tool to get out of those things without saying no too. Quick, quick fun story on that. I've shared before that I used to work in pro wrestling, mostly doing the commentary or broadcast work, but also doing interviews, ring announcing, managing, and I don't know, just about anything else. I loved working in that business, but there were some people in places I did not like working for. So I'd use this model to either get out of it or to make it very much worth my time. They'd call, they'd offer me the, the gig, and I'd say, yes, <laughs> absolutely. If you can cover my transportation, meals, and also I charge this exorbitant amount of money for the job. <laughs> Either way, I win. They say no, and well, cool. I didn't really want the gig anyway, but they say yes. And well, yeah, I, mean, I got to go work there, but <laughs> I got a sweet payday coming. 
I don't know if that story helps a lot, but I like to tell it. And, and I just want to demonstrate the many, many uses for this powerful model. So try it out. The next time something comes across that you want to say no to, or that is honestly beyond your capacity or ability, flip the script. Say yes, if. You might find that you start getting what you need to do the things, or your workload may just start looking a little more reasonable. I want to read a review that was left on Apple Podcasts a little while ago. This is from Sisternomics, which I looked up and is a super great podcast as well. Well, Sisternomics says, if you love Star Trek and you value leadership, you'll love this podcast. Jeff is fun to listen to and really takes time to develop the episodes, giving them a layer of depth you don't often hear in leadership-related podcasts. Viewing leadership through the lens of this iconic TV series is such a a unique and compelling idea. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Sisternomics. You can get your review read on the podcast as well. Just head on over to Apple Podcasts, click the Write a Review button, and share your thoughts. It helps attract more listeners by giving social proof that this is worth listening to. And <laughs> it means the world to me, quite honestly. Screenshot your review and share it with me, and I'll read it on a future episode. You can send it to me on social media, on Twitter at SFLA Podcast, and Instagram and other places at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T. as in Tiran, A-K-I-N. Now, computer, what are we going to watch next time? So there was a time when this was some pretty mind-blowing stuff. But if you're newer to the Star Trek franchise, this might not pack the punch it once did. But we are going to see Mr. Spock smile. And we're going to see him freak out. You never loved him. Ah! Yes, in the 25th episode of the first season of the original series, This Side of Paradise, Spock and others get blasted with some spores and, well hijinks ensue. <laughs> this is a classic original episode that if you haven't seen, it is time for you to give it a watch. And until then, ex astra scientia. Hi there, cadets. In our last episode, where we watched Discovery's Choose Your Pain, we talked about the incredible performance review that Saru set up for himself. Well, I created a tool to help you do the same thing for yourself. For your free copy of this tool, visit jeffaken.com and join our mailing list. You'll get access to a copy that you can download for yourself and for your team. Just visit jeffaken.com and join the mailing list. Thanks. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast. 
to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid. Electric acid.